You're listening to the COVID-19 Update, a podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center focused on the science and policy implications of the outbreak. I'm Andrew Schwartz of the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and I'm joined by my colleague, Steve Morrison, to discuss the latest on COVID-19. Andrew and I are delighted today to be joined by Dr. Luciana Borio. Uh, she's a member of President-elect Biden's COVID-19 advisory group. She's a vice president at QTEL, former director at the National Security Council for Medical and Biodefense Preparedness. Um, she served for many years at FDA in many important roles there. Welcome, Lou, and thanks for giving us time today. My pleasure. It's great to be here with you. Now, let's start with the success of 2020 in the sense that we proved something we really didn't know was true or possible in 2020 in developing some very promising vaccines amid a raging pandemic at record speed. We had a structure created, Operation Warp Speed, that didn't hadn't existed before that. We have a complicated set of partners in that institution. And now we find ourselves introducing a vaccine into a very difficult set of environmental conditions here. And we can talk a bit about that. But nonetheless, this was the big positive story of 2020, it seems to me. Do you agree? And how do we explain this? That's right. I do agree. I think it's been a tremendous success to see these vaccines being developed and authorized in such record time. And I think it really reflects the, you know, a lot of complicated pieces coming together the right way. So first, these mRNA technologies for vaccines had been in development for many years, thanks to the support of U.S. government, including DARPA. And at the NIH had been working on those types of platforms in the lab. They had also done quite a bit of work with uh, coronaviruses, not the specific one, but other coronaviruses. SARS, MERS. That's right. And you know, it became a really perfect platform to respond to emergent infectious diseases. We didn't know that it was going to work back in March, but it was really, they allow a very quick design of a vaccine candidate once you have information about the virus, the virus sequence. So scientists were able to rapidly develop a prototype vaccine. They tested it very quickly. And the rate limiting step really was the large scale manufacturing. It's a little bit challenging to synthesize these vaccines in the lab. They're different from the usual process. And, you know, we still haven't been able to make, you know, the hundreds of millions of doses that would be desirable, but, you know, they've been manufactured now and the rollout has, has just begun. Now, Steve, you know, this went from concept to a, a real vaccine. And I want to just highlight how critical it's been to have these vaccines evaluated in the gold standard randomized controlled clinical trials that were large, that included diverse populations, that measured real hard clinical endpoints. They really measured not just whether somebody develops an immune response, which may or may not, you know, be, in, be protective. We don't know that. But they really measured whether these vaccines prevented COVID disease. And a lot of it, I think, is thanks to the FDA, the FDA staff, the career staff in vaccines under the leadership of Marion Gruber and Phil Kraus, really designing the, the concept for how these vaccines should be developed in a public health emergency in the most expedited fashion, but one also that gives us the information that we need to be able to take them with confidence. 
Now, they came under great pressure, political pressure from the White House and elsewhere. How were they able to ultimately combat that and, and maintain the integrity of their processes, in your view? Yeah, so this is a you know, highly experienced staff that had been working on vaccines for, for many years, actually decades sometimes, some of them. And they understood the responsibility that they had. And they understood that you know, vaccines is something that the world relies on and that a misstep would have been, could have eroded confidence in more than just COVID vaccines, but childhood vaccines, vaccines that are really important to prevent in some very horrible diseases. And they, they really basically charted a path forward that was, again, not only efficient, but rigorous and give us the information we needed with respect to these vaccine safety and efficacy. And industry followed. Industry came to their defense, didn't they? Didn't industry proved to be a very powerful advocate of saying, don't screw around with this, because they knew they were going to have their own reputation soiled if things went badly. That's right. And, uh, you know, again, I have a lot of respect for them. So they they published the guidance. They held an advisory committee to, to be able to discuss the data publicly. They received adequate input. And the companies also deserve a lot of, a lot of credit for conducting, you know, very large and well done trials that included diverse populations. And they continue, vaccine development doesn't end with one phase three clinical trial, right? They're continuing to develop these products and we're continuing to learn more about these products. And you know, and all in all, this has been a spectacular success. Thank you, I wanna invite Andrew to jump in here. Thanks, Steve. Lou, the Biden team during the campaign, during the transition has put a lot of thought into COVID and what to do about COVID. Going forward, what does President-elect Biden and soon-to-be President Biden, what does his administration need to do differently looking forward in terms of research and development and in terms of deployment of promising new therapies? Sure. Well, first of all, it is a top priority and it ought to be because it's impacting every single American and every single person in this country and every single person in the world. You know, it's what pandemics do. So it's, it's an unprecedented crisis. Let me go back to vaccine just for a minute, right? So 100 million vaccine doses in the first 100 days. That's, you know, that's a tall order. Right now, we're not even, we're not close to that. We're vaccinating about 250,000 people a day. And we need to really ramp that, that up. I think part of it is going to be just, you know, fixing the logistics. I think the manufacturing supply is steady right now. And it's not, you know, we don't have excess. Part of it will be predicated on whether, the third vaccine candidate is successful. We should know about that, and you know, next next towards the end of this month, January or early February. And then there's the whole issue of vaccine hesitancy, right? That we there's a foundation of vaccine hesitancy in this circumstance. It's very natural for people to be anxious about a new vaccine, new technologies. But all in all, because we have really hard data, really good data on the quality of these vaccines and the performance, people are willing to roll up the sleeves and, and be vaccinated. It's, it's been impressive to see how many people are actually interested in, in receiving this vaccine. And I think that's just phenomenal. So, you know, there'll be a very concerted effort on getting vaccines out there to people and importantly, in hard to reach areas, right? So equity is a priority for this administration. And the other part that is, you know, really a centerpiece is this idea that we would like to be able to open schools, reopen schools safely and sustainably. And that's also going to be very critical to be able to get the economy open. And again, we want the kids to go back to school. You know, there are discussions about how to best do that. 
Uh, we need to be able to improve the numbers that are, we're seeing right now as a result of the you know holiday travels and a lot of resistance to following public health measures still. But hopefully when, you know, he, you know, after January 20th, when he becomes the president, there'll be a more coordinated, consistent and clear messaging coming from the political leaders about the importance of taking public health measures that get us our country back on track. The first phase of introducing the vaccines has been pretty rough, right? I mean, we've had these introduced with very little national oversight in terms of planning for after the delivery to the to the state site. What happens from there to getting into into all of the distribution channels and and getting to the individuals? And so we have very low uptake in many places with where the the stocks that have been delivered are just not moving very fast. We have a very poor communication strategy, uncertainty around the production, and it's occurring in a period when the surge is continuing to escalate. We have the prospect that perhaps this new variant could kick things into higher order. And we have a very stressed health system, a health system that in some some places like Los Angeles or Atlanta, the hospitals are beginning to really move into wartime triage. It's very scary. So it's been a very difficult period. And I wonder whether public trust and confidence in vaccine pays a price in the midst of that kind of confusion and chaos and frustration, or whether you see this as just a temporary phase, we'll get through this. The Biden administration will bring a much higher commitment in terms of a national effort at trying to coordinate and support the localities and states in a more vigorous way. Can you just comment on that. Absolutely. I mean, I think that the CDC had repeatedly alerted Operation Warp Speed about this gaping hole in the plans to distribute vaccines. It was not sufficient to get, you know, vials filled and finished and distributed to states, that there ought to be plans to support the states to get them the vaccines out within their communities. Vaccine distribution is complicated. It really is complicated, and the states have not received support to be able to do all this planning. Now, let's not, you know, kid ourselves. This is the most challenging vaccination program ever done. This is like vaccines that have significant cold chain requirements. They're under an EUA, an emergency use authorization. There are two doses, so it had to be, you know, even the scheduling and the follow-up is different. And so it's it's extraordinarily challenging. So, I mean, the hiccups that we're seeing today are not surprising at all, but the fact is that we have to find a way to resolve them. That's the most important thing now is to really get these vaccines out there and distribute to who really, who need them. We all need them. We need these vaccines to get in arms. So you're right, the new administration is, at, as we speak, you know, really working hard to think about what are the most strategic and effective ways to be able to ramp up vaccination across America uh, after January 20th. Can we talk about the new variants of COVID and what kind of wrench have they thrown into the works when it comes to vaccinations, therapies, et cetera? Yeah. So, so again, not a surprise. It shouldn't be a surprise. These are RNA viruses and they mutate and they adapt over time. So the fact that we are seeing these variants at the stage should not be a surprise to any scientist or public health practitioner. What is a bit surprising and disappointing, as a matter of fact, is that in this country, in the U.S., we do not have a robust and coordinated system to be able to do the surveillance that is needed to be able to detect these 
viruses within our country. So it took the emergence of strains in the UK and in South Africa to get our systems then to begin to ramp up for us to cobble together uh, a system in this country. And it's still not a robust program. A million people tested positive per week in America and we're sequencing uh, less than 3,000 samples a week. So, and this is not even a coordinated program. So it's being done by academia and commercial labs and state labs. We do not have the visibility we need to have to be able to detect these viruses here in the state side. Does this mean that we're going to see a massive expansion of genetic sequencing in the United States in the course of 2021? You know, Steve, I cannot make any promises for what's going to happen, but I just don't see how we can, you know, be prepared for pandemics, how we can even continue to to adequately respond to this one and in the future without ramping up significantly our ability to do genomic surveillance. So, you know, what does it mean if there's no way to avoid it? Well, unfortunately, they seem to be, you know, to have some kind of advantage because they're becoming more transmissible and they're becoming more prevalent in the population and the, and the infections detected. And here in the U.S. now, I think as of today, we have about 52 cases detected, even though not likely the number is much higher than that. The South African strain is even more concerning than the U.K. strain. The companies are now the vaccine companies and the companies that, are, that make monoclonal antibodies and the NIH, the NAID, they're in the process of doing the scientific experiments that are required to really understand what impact, if any, these variants have on the protective efficacy of the vaccine, as well as the potency of the monoclonal bodies. The South African stain, it seems like from preliminary results that it may have impacted the potency of the authorized monoclonal antibodies, at least uh, one of them. So, but we're still waiting for confirmatory studies. Doesn't the prospect that the new variant is going to accelerate transmission significantly and then the spread and the demand of infection is going to is going to increase and it doesn't that then increase the pressure to get the vaccines out even faster than what had been planned that's right not that we needed any more reason to do it <laughs> we you know to get it out as fast as possible i mean we have too many americans dying of covid uh, I think the numbers are now close to 4,000 deaths a day in America. Uh, but this just adds another dimension to it to really you know, bring home the seriousness of this pandemic. Yeah. I mean, yes, yesterday, while we were all preoccupied with the terrorist attack on the Capitol, 3,946 deaths were reported due to COVID. I mean, that that is a huge number. That's right. You know, and as I mentioned to you earlier today, when we were chatting before this, you know, that the ability to provide good care to patients matter tremendously. Quality of care will erode. There's no way around it. And then you're going to see mortality even higher than it needs to be. It's really very tragic situation. Can we talk a little bit about therapies? I mean, we talked earlier today in the session that you kindly participated in. You know, 2020 was a mixed, pretty mixed picture. There wasn't the big the really big win that we had on the vaccine side with Pfizer, Moderna, and high hopes for some of the other ones, AstraZeneca, J&J, and others, it was a pretty mixed picture, right? We had uh, some controversial distractions, very costly controversial distractions, hydroxychloroquine. We now have a fascination with ivermectin. Maybe we had sort of false starts around convalescent plasma, explosion of ideas and a certain amount of chaos. and But 
where did we wind up settling with the greatest promise? It was the older familiar things like steroids, dexamethasone. Remdesivir came forward, modest benefit, a little bit of debate around all of that. And now we've had monoclonal antibodies come forward as a very promising thing. We have emergency use authorization for two of them, Lilly and Regeneron, in August with a real hope of bringing down hospitalization rates, 55 to 70%. The mortality rate in the U.S. and elsewhere has come down. And so some of these therapies are having some effects, but it has been a very much different pattern, a more difficult pattern. And why why is that? Why haven't we seen more progress up to now on, on the side of therapies in your view? So first, it's, and it's really hard to find game-changing therapies. It's just, it's really hard to find. What's frustrating here is that we seem to be stuck for weeks or months on therapies that have little prospect of benefit, but because the data had not been accrued in a scientifically rigorous manner, it's very difficult to know whether to embrace them or cut them loose. And the most important thing we can do in these situations is really to start from day one to study these in a rigorous fashion. It's the most efficient way and the fastest way to be able to know what merits our attention and our resources and what doesn't. So you can really go through a lot of different candidates very quickly. In 2014, during the Ebola epidemic, I was very, I was at the FDA, very involved in the response. The U.S. government really led the effort to conduct randomized controlled clinical trials in West Africa to be able to test you know, vaccines and therapeutics. In 2017, there was a resurgence of Ebola, but this time in the DRC, it was a conflict zone. And the U.S. government, also in partnership with others, of course, were able to conduct randomized controlled clinical trials that actually showed demonstrated the value of monoclonal antibodies for Ebola. And my point is that, you know, these trials were conducted under very challenging circumstances, and but the U.S. government led the way. This time around, you see WHO, you see the U.K. partners leading the way in the randomized controlled trials. They understood the importance of them because of the experience of 2014 and 2017, and they insisted on doing them. And as a result, you can see the UK has been formally successful in doing very large scale clinical trials using their national healthcare system and identifying cures like dexamethasone as an adjunct treatment for COVID. The US has it's been a different story. The US, we don't have a coordinated healthcare system like the UK does. So what the NIH did was they they repurposed the existing clinical trial networks that existed for the study of different diseases. And these are incredibly powerful in the clinical trial networks. So they repurposed them for COVID, but there was a lot of distraction, a lot of noise in the system. There was hydroxychloroquine, there was convalescent plasma. It's very difficult for rigorous clinical trials to be conducted amidst so much noise. And patient enrollment has suffered because there were other potential therapies that were perceived to be available to patients. Right. It really diminished their desire to enroll in clinical studies. And, you know, and so now I see, I think we're making some, some good progress. So what you would expect is that science will take a front seat versus political interference and hyping the, the next flashy thing, and that there will be a more integrated and serious effort at R&D in the United States side? Absolutely. The president-elect has been very serious about this. And he's been, you know, he said his science is going to take a driver's seat. And as you know, he named Dr. Fauci as its chief medical advisor. 
And uh, I know of no better person to be able to take on that role, who's really a, a clinical trial evidence generation evangelist. He's been doing that for a long time. We may remember, you know, even in the early days of HIV, there were tremendous HIV AIDS. You know, there were tremendous demand for, for therapies. People were dying. It was a very, very difficult situation. And he knows that science is what allowed, you know, the, the treatments, the very, very highly effective treatments that really prolonged life to exist today was because of those rigorously done clinical studies. So I'm really glad to see that. You know, I, I want to ask Lou, what do you think is the first thing that's going to happen when President-elect Biden takes over? What, what can we expect different? You know, I'm sure there's many things we can expect different from, you know, one administration to the next. But I think a lot of people are wondering, you know, this is the biggest problem that we're facing. What is the, the Biden team going to do to ensure confidence that, you know, we've got this, we've got this under control, we're going to get this under control, and we're going to, you know, take this problem head on and, and really get our people vaccinated quickly. Sure. So let me, first of all, it's going to be hard. And the team knows that this is extraordinarily challenging, no matter who is in charge, it's going to be very difficult. And they know that. And I can honestly say that I've never worked with such an incredibly dedicated and accomplished group of people. I'm so impressed by the team that they are putting together to tackle COVID. It's uh, humbling to be, you know, to be part of this during the transition, but I can't think of a better group of people. It's a diverse group of people and they have a diverse set of experiences. They have sharp intellect. They have a heart like no other. They work as a team it's for the collective good. It's really that they have a common sense of, uh, you know, what needs to be done and what is it that we need to accomplish. So I just, I'm just so relieved to see that. And it's so rare to have a team where everybody is really golden. Well, you know, Lou, we usually end our podcast with the question of what gives you the greatest hope and optimism. And you just answered that question before we could put it to you. So thank you. So then what I'm going to do is the flip side question. What, what's on your mind? What are you most worried about in 2021 and 2022? Yeah, I think we have a lot of challenges as a country. It's a very polarized country and there's a lot of healing that needs to be done. It's very difficult to combat a pandemic in this environment we're in. So it's time for us to come together, you know, and join forces against the common threat, which is not each other, but really is this virus. There's got to be a lot of discussion amongst your team and you know the the broader transition team about communication strategies here because that's got to go to the heart of you know vaccine hesitancy bringing people together around this issue yeah i mean i think communication strategy is one key component of many and remember that you know when we talk about vaccine hesitancy right there's the communication strategy there is like the time of communication the content uh, who is doing the communicating but there's also issues of access. It can diminish hesitancy when you make it easy for people to access the product. So it's it really, there's, there's no, it's a very holistic approach to the problems that we're facing. And um, yeah, so I'm hopeful that there's, I, mean, I think that there's no better team to be able to tackle this. And I'm hopeful that despite these tremendous challenges ahead, uh, including the, the emergence of various strains and all that, that the country will get back in the right direction in the first few weeks of the new administration. Well, we sure are glad that you're part of it. Well, Lou, thank you so much. Thank you so much for being with us today. And thanks for 
your leadership and commitments and willingness to share with us here today. We wish you the very best. Thanks for having me. It's been really wonderful to be here today with you. Thank you, Andrew, and thank you, Steve.